0: Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Professor Edward Frankel will join us to discuss love and math. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Welcome back to the Grox Science Show. Well, saying the word math to many conjures dread or sometimes even anxiety. Perhaps because the beauty at the heart of mathematics is never truly conveyed upon learning its fundamentals. Well, joining us today to discuss this issue is Professor Edward Frankel. Professor Frankel is a professor of mathematics at the University of California at Berkeley, which he joined after being on the faculty at Harvard. He has authored and produced several works in mathematics, and his recent book, Love and Math, The Heart of Hidden Reality, attempts to convey the beauty of mathematics to a general audience. And Professor Frankel, we're very pleased to have you today on the Grok Science Show. Pleasure to be here. Truly, a great book written here, Love and Math. You talk about your own interest in math and beauty behind math. Why did you decide to write this book?
1: Well, Charles, I think that mathematics is the most misunderstood subject. It is a crucial subject, and of course all of us have to study it at school to some extent. But I think it is also the most misunderstood. And uh, the reason is that when we study mathematics at school, we go only get to see a very small part of it. In my book, I make this analogy. Imagine that you had an art class in which they only taught you how to paint a fence or a wall but never showed you the paintings of the great masters. That's pretty much the situation we have right now with math education. We don't know about the works of the great masters in, in mathematics, so some years later, when we hear about math, you know, a lot of us tend to say, oh, I hate math or I was bad at math, without realizing that actually what we're really saying is that I was bad at painting the fence, but I never really get to see the, the subject in its, all of its beauty. So we're never really given the big picture, if you will. That's right. So continuing with that analogy, in both cases, painting a fence or painting a, a masterpiece, uh, it involves paint, but to very different uh, motivation, very different results. Of course, uh, what we do study at school, arithmetic, some basic algebra, trigonometry, things like that, they are important topics, and they are, you know, they needed to be studied and so on. But it's also important, I think, to expose the subject, just like you said, the big picture of the subject. What are its goals? What are its connections to the real world? I think students oftentimes don't see those connections and they think of mathematics as this boring, lifeless, irrelevant subject. And I can speak uh, with authority on this as because as I explain in my book, I was in exactly the same position. When I was a student, I also thought math was a boring subject which had no connection to the real world because I, nobody ever told me about this. But I was lucky when I was in my last year of high school There was someone in my life who was a professional mathematician who opened that beautiful world, this magic universe of mathematics for me, and that's what I would like to do uh, with this book for my readers. Really, what led you then to becoming interested in math? Well, so initially when I, was a, when I was at school, when I was in high school, what really interested me was quantum physics. I was fascinated with elementary particles, how they interacted, all those building blocks of nature, like quarks or electrons and so on. And, but what I didn't realize is that behind this, all these particles and, and structures was deep mathematical theory. And that's what uh, this mathematician who you know, was a friend of my family, friend of a friend of my parents, that's what he explained to me. I remember this moment very vividly. I must have been about 15 years old. He pulled out a book from the shelf, and he opened it, and, he, and I saw these formulas and equations and diagrams, and I couldn't really understand them at the time, but it was clear that those were the glimpses of that of that world, which was hidden from me. So that was my entry point through an interest in quantum physics, and that's how I realized that there was a lot more to mathematics than, 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 I, than what I was led to believe, and that's how I fell in love with mathematics and uh, I wanted to study it, I wanted to learn more to understand how physicists for example came up with the idea of quarks, or those little elementary particles which are trapped inside protons and neutrons. So that was my, that was my entry point in, into math but, and, and eventually my, my research actually led me back to quantum physics. In my book Love and Math I talk a lot about my recent research which is on the interface between mathematics and quantum physics. It turns out that mathematical theory is indispensable and essential for understanding the way our universe works at the most fundamental level of elementary particles, the building blocks of nature, as well as on a large scale, the scale of the universe. So this
0: math can uncover aspects of the physical world that uh, might not be uh, amenable without it.
1: That's right. In my book I give an example, you know, Albert Einstein's uh, General Relativity Theory. So Einstein uh, realized that our space-time is curved, and here I'm not talking about the Earth being curved. Of course we know the Earth is round, and we've known this for, for millennia, but. Einstein's revolutionary insight was that our space time is, is not flat, it's curved. In other words, if you have a ray of light, it doesn't travel along a straight line, but it bends near a massive object like a star. How did he come up? How did Einstein come up with these ideas? Well, there was no empirical evidence for this. He wasn't trying to fit any experimental data into mathematical theory. No, he came up with this idea within the narrative within the framework of mathematics because he tried to generalize his special relativity to allow for systems which are accelerating and he he had a deep insight that acceleration and gravity are sort of one and the same thing and the rest was just math he just took the math as far as he he could go and he discovered this property that for the formulas and equations to work space-time had to be curved around massive objects and and, uh, lo and behold A few years later, this was confirmed by an experiment. So this is a very good example of mathematics driving research in natural sciences. There are many examples like this. For example, Dirac's discovery of antimatter from an equation which now carries his name. Or Gelman and Zweig's discovery prediction of quarks, uh, which I also talk about in my book, which was also uh, uh, also followed from my Michael theory, and also the prediction of the Higgs boson, which of course was in the news recently because of the Nobel Prize, which was awarded uh, to people who made that prediction.
0: Well, how is it that uh, we can sort of grasp these sort of features? I mean, are there aspects of it uh, that we can kind of appreciate and just sort of more general features?
1: That's a very good question, Charles. Uh, of course, there are, two, there are two sides of this. First, appreci- starting, we, we need to appreciate the importance of mathematics and what mathematics is good for. I think oftentimes, even among scientists, people only appreciate mathematics as a, a, a way uh, of building models around empirical data. So from this point of view, mathematics plays sort of a secondary role, that the scientist would collect some data and then uh, would work with the mathematician to create a model around it. So what I'm trying to say is actually mathematics plays a more fundamental role, because for example, our imagination is quite limited. Our visual imagination is quite limited. We can only imagine three spatial dimensions. We can only imagine curved objects, like a sphere or surface of a donut, which have dimension no more than two. But now we realize that our our universe might well have a higher dimension than four, four, three spatial and one-time dimension, and even imagining four-dimensional space-time is beyond. So how can we possibly think of higher-dimensional spaces? How can we imagine curved spaces which are not embedded into a landscape of a flat space? Mathematics is the only way to do this. And and this is important to appreciate this. And that's the first step. And, of course, then the second step is to ask, how do we actually convey these ideas? How do we explain these ideas? And here I think that there there is a disconnect. There is a disconnect between professional mathematicians like myself and the general public. We don't do a good job communicating ideas of mathematics. And I personally believe that these ideas, some of them, Fundamental ideas could be communicated in rather elementary way in accessible way, because they are not really much more complicated than such uh, scientific ideas as a DNA or the solar system or the idea of the quantum. And of course, you know, I'm not a biologist. I, I never took courses in, in biology. But if someone talks to me about DNA, okay, I have a basic rudimentary idea so I can carry a conversation. This is part of our collective consciousness. This is part of our cultural discourse. But not mathematical theories such as the Langlands program, which I talk about in my book, which I think is just as important as Einstein's relativity theory or the theory of DNA. I can have as much potential to change our daily lives, but mathematics is inevitably more abstract, it doesn't connect immediately to the real world or to our consciousness the way some other ideas in science uh, you know, can connect. So we have to be more creative, we have to find ways to explain things and in my book I try to use analogies and metaphors explaining mathematical ideas and I think this is something that can go a long way.
0: The program that you mentioned the, the area of your own research, the, the Langlands program, uh, right. as you call it, the Grand Unified Theory of, of Mathematics, and, and it's a groundbreaking area, as you mentioned, but something that most of us aren't familiar with. I'm curious if you maybe talk about this.
1: Well, I, I would like to put the Langlands program on the map, and, and it's kind of interesting because Langlands, Robert Langlands is a mathematician who currently occupies the office of Albert Einstein at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton. So in the uh, late 60s, he came up with these ideas, which, now, which led to what we now call the Langlands program. Program, which is one of the biggest ideas, I think, that came out of mathematics in the last 50 years. And so, how do you how do does explain this in sort of um, in just in a few words? Well, the basic idea is that the language program allows us to connect different fields of mathematics. And for an outsider, for someone who is outside of math, mathematics might appear as just this one big lump. But actually, mathematics has many different subfields. For example, there is algebra, there is analysis, there is number theory, and so on, geometry, and so on, right? And so all of this in, 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 in mathematics, unfortunately, is becoming more and more fragmented segmented where you have people say algebra is working on their problems, geometers working on their problems, and they not talking to each other that much. But every once in a while, suddenly Bridges can be built, connections can be made between different fields, and I think that this the most exciting when that happens, the most fascinating, because it tells us something when we learn something that certain different subjects or subjects which appear to be different actually are part of one and the same thing. That tells us something about mathematics at a much deeper level. because honestly we don't really know I think what mathematics is really about. Of course there are all kinds of concepts which are we are familiar with such as the concept of numbers or lines and planes and triangles and things like that and of course they are important and they are there but in, in recent years mathematicians have discovered they may not be the most fundamental ones and I talk about this in my book but to really understand what are the most fundamental objects, what are we doing in mathematics really uh, I think for that it's very important to be able to see and find those connections and that's why language program is important more specifically, what Langlands envisioned in the late '60s was the idea was that idea that certain questions in number theory would have to do with numbers so it, could be stated in terms of some very simple-looking equations with solutions and whole numbers, which I you know, I describe in more detail in my book. So those things turn out to be related to the study of what mathematicians call harmonic analysis. And harmonic analysis is again something which is very grounded in our day-to-day experience. When we hear the sound of a symphony, we realize at an intuitive level, of course, that the sound is a composition, is a superposition, is built out of notes of different instruments. And each of those notes is what we call in mathematics a harmonic. It's a basic sound wave. So the idea of harmonic analysis is that complicated signals, such as the sound of a symphony, can be decomposed, can be built out of elementary harmonics, out of elementary sound waves. And this idea has proved to be very important in mathematics and can be used in a much more general context. But at the outset, this area of research looks totally different from number theory. And yet, what Langland saw and what Langland Proposed was that there was, an, there was a very deep link between the two fields, number theory and harmonic analysis. So he was able to translate very difficult questions from number theory into the theory of harmonic analysis, and that allowed, us, allowed mathematicians to solve problems which seemed virtually intractable. For example, Fermat's last theorem, which, uh, whose solution you know, was very famous in the 90s, was actually achieved in this framework.
0: Yeah, Andrew Wiles was able to use different fields of mathematics to, to come up with That's a solution, right. and yes.
1: Andrew, Andrew Wiles and Richard Taylor were able to solve it, but, and, and I, and I explain this in detail in my book. They were able to solve it, but they solved it within the context of, precisely of, of the language program. So that shows the power of these of this ideas of connecting different fields of mathematics.
0: So is really the Langlands program then a fundamental aspect of mathematics this thing from which all other mathematics might spring, or is it really just the bridges between fields of mathematics?
1: Well, originally the idea was to build bridges between different fields of mathematics, and not necessarily all fields of mathematics. Initially it was number theory and uh, harmonic analysis that got connected by, by Langlands. But later on we realized that the same ideas, the same patterns, can be observed in other areas as well, for example in geometry, and more recently also in quantum physics. And I talk in, uh, you know, in great detail about this in my book. Um, there are, of course, some other areas of mathematics which are not necessarily connected to the language program at the moment. So language, I would not say that the language program is somehow the most fundamental part of mathematics, but it is a set of ideas which allow us to look at different fields in a different way, in a new light, that they are connected, they enable us to build those bridges. And, but building those bridges is not just, um, doesn't just enable us to translate things it also leads to deeper understanding of those fields which we connect for example we were able to get in better understanding of number theory we were able to gain better understanding of harmonic analysis of geometry and now even of quantum physics
0: uh, so, is it difficult to find these connections, or they emerge
1: after sort of comparing the different branches of mathematics? Well, it's, it's difficult to see, but moreover, I would, I would, in my opinion, we still don't understand why they exist, you see, so this is fascinating, right? So the ideas first came out in, in the late 1960s, so it was almost 50 years ago, and as far as I from my point of view, uh, my opinion is that we still don't know why these connections have been proved in some cases. So once the ideas, idea was out there, people started testing it, and so on one side, it, it, just to give an example, on one side you could try to solve some equations on whole numbers, and you can try to count numbers of solutions and so on, and it looks like you get some random sequence of numbers, for example. And on the other side, then you realize that those numbers appear out of something, uh, some function which is natural in harmonic analysis, and it's just a complete miracle. It's really like magic. And uh, I'm not saying it is magic. It is not magic. It's something which is very deep and which we should get very deep understanding of. But it is, at the moment, a big mystery, right? So Langlands was able to see that. That was a a revolutionary insight. And of course, uh, there were some examples that he was able, through those examples, he was able to see these patterns, right? But once we have, once we know, once we believe that they are out there, we are trying to analyze and we're trying to understand what's behind them. And we've made some progress in the last 50 years in understanding them, in finding more examples. And even more so, we were able to see the same patterns now showing up in other areas, right? But the question, I think, that really drives this research and makes so many people fascinated about it is why these connections are there. And it's one of the biggest mysteries. It's sort of like one of the wonders of the world, in my opinion. Indeed. Do
0: you think it reflects something about, as you put it in the subtitle of your book, hidden reality? universe? Hidden reality.
1: That's right. So, my, The subtitle of my book is The Heart of Hidden Reality. So so I talk about mathematics as this kind of hidden reality. But, and this is an example of that. So there is something beneath the surface which we don't see yet. So the Langlands, Langlands ideas indicated there are certain things which we still don't understand beneath the surface. And this is not the first time this happened, of course. There have been many, in the history of mathematics, there have been breakthroughs where certain things or certain properties were observed and for many years various mathematicians were not able to find an explanation. And then the explanation was found and that's maybe turned some fields upside down. And that's what I think is going to happen. That the, the result as a result of this research we have already learned so much, such a great deal about mathematics. But we'll actually we will, we will still learn more in the next fifty years. The greatest challenges are not just testing these ideas and uh, different examples and, and different specific examples, which has been going on and which is also very important. But to really try to understand why why they're there in the first place. And so I'll, I'll give you another example. So the the patterns of the language program also show up in quantum physics, right? And this was one of the most interesting developments, I think, in the last ten years, in which uh, I was I was very lucky to participate. As I, and I explain in the book, actually, I sort of, I sort of take my readers behind the scenes and I show you know some board meetings where people uh, gathered and tried to attack these problems and tried to um, make advances and try to understand what's going on. But physics, actually, the Langlands program has to do with something very fundamental, which is called the electromagnetic duality. And this is a very special property of electric and and, and magnetic fields which if you look at the equations which describe electric and magnetic forces, the so-called Maxwell equations after physicists who first wrote those equations in in the late uh, 19th century, can see that if you switch electric and magnetic forces, if you replace electric by magnetic, magnetic by electric, the equations stay the same. And it's surprising because we know that electric and magnetic forces play quite different roles. Uh, Electric forces is what's responsible for electricity, for example, for the light. And magnetic force is what enables us to use a compass to orient ourselves. So it's a very different, and yet they enter the equations in a very symmetrical way. So that led to this idea of electromagnetic duality. And physicists have wondered as to whether the same kind of duality can be observed in more general physical models, in so-called gauge theories, for example. And gauge theories are are the mathematical models which have been used to describe the interaction of elementary particles. Uh, The so-called standard model, of which the Higgs boson was sort of the latest confirmation, is a gauge theory. And so then, in the 70s, physicists theorized that a kind of electromagnetic duality could also hold in this more general physical theories, which are not that far away from the standard model. They're more abstract and more idealized in some sense, but not that far away. And lo and behold, they found some structures which are exactly the same as the ones appearing in the Langlands program in mathematics. And nobody knew why, but it was a big question, it was a big mystery. And only in the last five, ten years, it was only in the last five, ten years that we found some pieces, some fragments of the answer and I talk about this in, in the book, that it, it turns out that there is a link, in fact, there is a link between Langland's program in mathematics and electromagnetic duality, even though they look like they come from two different worlds, the world of mathematics and the world of physics. And it's like, I think it's, it's, a long, it's on this path of connecting different fields and trying to see the same patterns showing up and working out in different areas of math and physics, and maybe other areas of science, that we will be able to make progress and be able to understand and to see things in the right light.
0: Well, this book, you do try and take readers behind the scenes uh, onto what mathematicians are really trying to do in terms of approaching it.
1: Well, I talk, in my book, I talk uh, mostly about the language program, but different aspects of it. And uh, the reason I talk about this is that I think it gives a good panoramic view of what mathematics is really about. It's really about you know, groundbreaking insights and tantalizing uh, conjectures. And um, it, it's, I would like my readers uh, to see that Mathematics is sort of a struggle of ideas that it's not set in stone, the way, you know, when I was taught uh, at school, I thought mathematics was something which was sort of decided a thousand years ago, and we are just turning the pages of those, uh, you know, the books that collect dust in the libraries. But actually, mathematics is a, is a struggle of ideas, it's, uh, it's a struggle with the unknown. And I would like to give my readers the sense of that, because I, I sort of take them um, behind the scenes, like I said, and I, I show them how those discoveries were made. and also, so talking about Langlands program gives me a chance to talk about different um, areas of mathematics, like number theory and harmonic analysis and geometry and physics, and uh, talk about different elements. And all of those are the uh, objects and ideas which, unfortunately, most of us never get to see when we study mathematics at school. And so I hope that when my readers read about this, when they see this stuff, this will allow them to take another look at mathematics and see how much more interesting and how much more fascinating the subject is than they were led to believe.
0: Well, the new book is called Love and Math, The Heart of Hidden Reality, and the author is Professor Edward Frankel. Uh, Dr. Frankel, I want to thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. My pleasure. And you were just listening to Professor Edward Frankel discussing love and math. This is the Grok Science Show. Coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000, so stay tuned. Grokatron 5000. It is our supercomputer, formerly known as Deep Blue. And today the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, a unifying entity or a statistical outlier. So for the following five individuals, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if you would classify them more as a unifying entity or as a statistical outlier and a little reason why. Dr. Frankly, ready to play the game? All right, I'm ready. All right, here we go. Person number one, is he more of a unifying entity or a statistical outlier? It's the uh, talk show host, Jerry Springer. Jerry
1: Springer. I would say that's a unifying entity. Well, I don't watch his show on regular basis, <laughs> but I, I, have, I must have seen a couple of clips over uh, over the years, so I think I have an idea, and I think that it, 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 the reason I classify that as, as a unifying entity is because I think he represents a certain kind of a day of a daytime show television show. so in that sense, I think that he maybe in a sense he created uh, with one of the people who created that trend or that that class of shows, but I certainly wouldn't call him a statistical outlier. <laughs> okay.
0: Okay. All right. Person number uh, two, it's the uh, golfer Tiger Woods.
1: Tiger Woods. Well, Tiger Woods, I would say statistical outlier because, uh, uh, again, I don't play golf and I don't follow it that much. But yes, I do. I would have to be brain dead not to know about Tiger Woods and not to know that he was head and shoulders above other golfers, at least for a significantly long period of time. So, yes, statistical outlier for sure.
0: Okay. Person uh, four, Vice President Al Gore.
1: Al Gore. Al Gore's a statistical outlier too. Right? You know, very impressive individual who saw a lot of things early on, way before others could see them. So that's in my book, that's a statistical outlier.
0: All right. Uh, and person number four, it's uh, the pop star Britney Spears.
1: Britney Spears that's a tough one (laughs) i like britney spears i think she was a groundbreaking artist in many ways so but then of course she had many followers so in a way one would say she's a unifying she i think she started out as a statistical outlier but it became um, a unifying entity
0: all right and uh finally uh, number five it's uh, a senator from texas ted cruz
1: senator from texas uh, ted cruz i would say For now, he is a statistical outlier, and I hope he does not become a unifier.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, Dr. Frank, I want to thank you very much for sticking around, playing our game, and again uh, talking about your new book, Love and Math, The Heart of Hidden Reality. Thank you so much for your time.
1: My pleasure. Thank you.